All right, there's some notes in the front and notes in the back if you need some. We're going to talk tonight about Solus Christus and why this is important and how it fits in with the Reformation. If you've been here the last couple of weeks, you know that uh, we've been talking about the five solas of the Protestant Reformation. Uh, 1517 was the year Martin Luther nailed his 95 theses to the church door in Wittenberg, Germany. And so we've celebrated the 500th anniversary of that this year in uh, 2017. And here's the five solas as we've talked about them. Sola Scriptura, that's Scripture alone. That's our final authority. We don't listen to popes and councils over Scripture, but Scripture itself is the final authority. We talked about sola gratia, which is grace alone. It's not any good thing that we can do that saves us, but it is God's grace. We are dead in our sins. We're alienated from God, separated from God. We can't fix that problem, and God is the one who reaches out to us in His grace. We talked about sola fide, which is our response to God's grace. We have faith. This is faith alone. And we talked about the doctrine of justification by faith alone. We are not justified or made right with God by works. The righteousness of God is not something we can earn or merit, but it's something that we trust God to give us. It's something that Jesus accomplished for us, and we receive it through faith. And so tonight we're going to talk about Solus Christus, and especially in these middle three, you can see it's really hard to talk about grace and faith in Christ separately without those bleeding over into each other. Because God's grace leads to faith, and our faith is in Christ. And so it's a little bit artificial to separate those and talk about them individually. But uh, we've tried to do it and also tried to show how they all fit together. So typically when we think about the Reformation, Martin Luther is the guy that comes to mind. And you can see a picture of Luther over on the left. Uh, Just an interesting bit of history. Uh, Luther came out of being a monk. And monks wanted to be, you know, very rigorous in what they ate or they didn't eat and their diet and their prayers and all of that stuff. And Luther came out of that and felt a little bit of freedom. Like, I don't have to perform and be so ascetic in my lifestyle to earn anything with God. I don't have to punish myself physically to make God love me. And uh, he liked to eat. And he liked to drink. And in all of the pictures you see of Luther, you notice he's got a big double chin. And he told the guys who painted him, please draw my double chin. Like that was intentional. I don't want to look skinny and frail like I haven't eaten anything like a monk. I want to look like somebody who's got a full belly because I have enjoyed what God has provided. And so there's Luther with his double chin over on the left. The guy on the right was leading the Reformation at the exact same time, in sort of a parallel way, in Switzerland. Martin Luther is leading things in Germany. The guy on the right that you see on the screen is Ulrich Zwingli. And Zwingli was a Swiss reformer. And both of these guys really took their cue from Erasmus's Greek New Testament. In 1516, Catholic theologian Erasmus compiles all the best Greek manuscripts he could get his hand on at the time. Original, not original, like Paul wrote the, uh, the letter to the Romans, but old manuscripts, copies of what had been written, and he compiled them all together, and he came up with this critical edition of the New Testament in Greek. It wasn't in Latin. So they weren't reading a translation. They were reading the original language. And Luther starts studying that, and that's where light bulbs start going off. And Zwingli starts studying that, and light bulbs 
start going off when they go back to the text. So in 1519, this is uh, three years after Erasmus puts his Greek New Testament out. This is a couple of years after Luther nails the theses up. 1519, Ulrich Zwingli is called to pastor the Great Minster Church in Zurich. And that's about the best picture of the church I could find. And it's obviously the one on the left with the two big spires and uh, the flags on top. He's called to pastor that church. You can visit it today uh, if you go to Zurich. And the first thing he said when they called him to be the pastor, remember, in this day and age, the only thing there is is Catholic churches, right? Like, that's all there is. It wasn't Lutherans or... Zwinglians or Baptists or Anabaptists. It was just churches. So he goes to this church, and the first thing he says to them is, I will not be preaching through the church's calendar of what I'm supposed to say in the homily. If you've ever been to a Catholic service, you know if they've seen a printed order, they don't have a spot for a sermon. They have a homily. It's a little bit shorter, and it's dictated by the church calendar, and the church sort of says, this is what you need to talk about on this day, and they give him some direction. And Zwingli walks in, and he says, hey, I'm glad to be your pastor, but I'm not doing any of that. I'm going to preach. And he said to them initially, all I'm going to do is we're going to start in Matthew 1.1, first book of the New Testament, and here we go. And I'm just going to, we're going to talk about the Bible, week in and week out. I'm going to preach the text. So he preaches Matthew, he preaches Acts next, and then First and Second Timothy, and then Galatians, and then First and Second Peter. And over a period of six years, this is not Sunday mornings only, but over a period of six years, he preaches through the entire New Testament, book by book, verse by verse, paragraph by paragraph. No one did that in his day. The priest stood up during the homily and said, okay, this is what I'm, I'm supposed to read this scripture and this is kind of what I'm supposed to say about it. This is the church's take and there you go. That was the homily. And Zwingli said, we're not doing any of that. We're going back to the text, sola scriptura, and we're going to talk about what the text says. Fast forward a couple years, 1523. Zwingli wrote a book called, you'll like the title, An Attack on the Canon of the Mass. Pretty subtle. Right? Catholic Church calls their services the Mass, and he says, well, I'm writing a book, and it's an attack on the Mass. And uh, a couple of years later, there is no more Mass in Zurich. It's completely gone. Zwingli completely abolished it, and it wasn't practiced. And Zwingli said, look, when I go back to the Scriptures, and then I look at what the Mass had become, he said, I have a major problem with the veneration of images and relics. He said, I think this is idolatry. All of the bells and the whistles and the things we put on the walls and the things we're looking at and praying to or talking to. And he just said, it's just a mess. We're just a bunch of idol worshipers. And he did something that was really radical. He went to his church and to all these churches throughout Switzerland, and he just started cleaning them out. Like if you've ever been in a Catholic church, you've seen how ornate some of them can be. Well, Pre-Reformation, man, they were really ornate. And Zwingli goes through, and I'll just give you a list of some of the things he got rid of. He got rid of all relics. He got rid of all images on the walls, all religious Catholic paraphernalia, meaning candles and all that sort of stuff. He blew out stained glass windows, which we kind of say, oh, I wish he wouldn't have done that. But he said, no, we're getting rid of that stuff. We're not going to look at images and think about images. We're going to think about Christ who got rid of stained glass windows uh, smashed them up, took the pipe organ out, said it's too distracting. 
it keeps us from focusing on Christ, so the pipe organ's got to go. Took down the altars, took down the pictures of the saints, burned them outside the church. I mean, he just gutted them. And there's a Catholic theologian who lived at this same time. His name's Johann Eck. He was a big opponent of Luther. And he went and he visited some of these churches in Switzerland. And he wrote a letter to Charles V. We have the letter, and in the letter he said this. Charles V was the, the Holy Roman Emperor. He said, in Switzerland, they no longer have churches but stables. Like He's, he's turned these beautiful churches, and Eck thought it was a travesty. He's taken our beautiful churches, and it's a barn. And Zwingli said, exactly. We've got rid of all the mess that's distracted us. And now we can focus on Christ. Uh, Luther and Zwingli went on and they disagreed about a lot of stuff. They had real big fights about the Lord's Supper. But one thing they agreed on is our focus as the people of God needs to be on Christ alone. Not on the saints. Not on Mary. Not on what's going on in the Mass. Not on the pictures on the wall. Not on all this other stuff. But our focus needs to be on Christ. And so I put this quote at the beginning of your, uh, your notes Zwingli said, Christ is the only way to salvation for all who ever were, are, and shall be. I call my flock absolutely away as far as I can from hope in any created being to the one true God in Jesus, his only begotten son. And Zwingli is saying, we're getting rid of all this stuff because Christ alone really does matter. And so we're going to try to make sense of what that means. Let's talk about Rome before the Reformation for just a few minutes. If we dialed it back before Luther, before Zwingli, and we said, do you guys believe in Jesus? Of course they would have said yes. If we would have said, is Jesus how a person is saved? Of course they would have said yes. If we would have said, is, is Jesus somebody that you should worship and serve and follow? Of course they would have said yes. The problem is they had Jesus plus a bunch of other stuff. And that's where the reformers came in and said, no, 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 Jesus plus other people or other things is no good. It's Christ alone, solus Christus, and you've got to cut all this other stuff off. So what's the other stuff? We'll start with the Mass. And I'm just going to read to you from the Catechism of the Catholic Church, and I think I put this on the screen. Here we go. This is not me telling you what they believe. This is them telling you what they believe. Okay, The sacrifice of Christ... That's on the cross 2,000 years ago outside of Jerusalem. Sacrifice of Christ and the sacrifice of the Eucharist or the Mass in the moment when the priest stands up and says the words over the elements and breaks the bread. They are a single sacrifice. And this divine sacrifice which is celebrated in the Mass, the same Christ who offered himself once in a bloody manner on the altar of the cross is contained and is offered in an unbloody manner. Meaning, when the priest stands up and says the words, and we take of the Mass, it really is Jesus. It is another sacrifice, not just being acted out, but it is a real sacrifice taking place in that moment. Which is why if you go to a Catholic church, the place where the guy stands up to give the homily is way over here on the corner. And at the middle of the stage is usually a big giant table where they do the Mass or the Eucharist. That's the main event. You are not there for the homily. You are there for the sacrifice. 
And this is where the doctrine of transubstantiation comes in. And the Catholic teaching is that when the priest says the words over the elements, they actually become the body and the blood of Christ. There is a real transformation so that when they break the elements and they pour the elements, it is actually another sacrifice of Christ. It's not just a drama, not just acting it out, but it is actually happening all over again every time that happens. Which is one reason, for a lot of years, the church refused to let the common people take of the cup in the Lord's Supper. They would pass around the bread or they would let them come up for the bread but they were so afraid that the common people would accidentally spill the cup. And they said, we can't have people spilling Jesus' blood in the church. That would be terrible. So they're not going to pass around the cup. They're only going to give you the bread and the, the priest is going to take the cup. Which is why, if you've ever been to a service today, they let the people take of the cup. But when he's done with the cup, he's going to wipe it out. He's not going to leave any of that juice or wine or whatever they use in it because it really has become the body and the blood of Jesus. And the reformers looked at that and said, you've totally missed it. We'll talk about why in just a minute. But they said, we don't need to re-sacrifice Jesus over and over and over and over again. He offered one sacrifice. And when he offered it, he said, it's finished. It's done. I have completed the mission that I came to accomplish. And they rejected this idea of the mass re-sacrificing Jesus over and over and over again. So they said, Jesus alone, you got to get rid of the mass. Let's talk about the saints in the treasury of merit. Okay, This is one thing that is really super weird to Protestants and Catholics don't understand our hang-up. Okay? Let me try to explain it to you this way. How many of you have ever asked another person to pray for you? Raise your hand. Okay, Just about everybody, I think, has asked somebody else to pray for you. The Catholic idea is if you would ask the person sitting next to you to pray for you, why would you not ask someone who has died on earth but is still very much alive in the presence of Jesus, why would you not ask them to pray for you as well? To which you say, yeah, but they're dead. Like, that's kind of creepy. And the Catholics say, yeah, but they're alive. Like, the body's dead, but they're still alive. You don't believe that they're dead, dead. Like, their body's there, but they're alive. If you ask someone else to pray for you, why wouldn't you ask someone who has died to also pray for you and to help you in that way, especially somebody who has been canonized by the church as a saint. Okay, Not everybody dies as a Roman Catholic and then gets saint added to their name. You know that if you watch the news when the process has happened a couple of times lately. Uh, but the point of the process is, if I can just sort of put it in a nutshell, to look at somebody's life, to make sure they meet the criteria for sainthood, and there's this idea in Catholic theology, this sounds so wonky to Protestants, but I'm just telling you what the, the teaching is, is that the saints had more than enough righteousness that they needed when they died to get into heaven. Like they had an A++. Like if you need 100 to get in, well, they had 110 or 120 or 101 or whatever. They had extra. 
And the extra, since they didn't need it, the extra goes into something called the treasury of merit. Who do you think controls the treasury of merit? The church does. And so the church will say to you, look, when you pray to these saints, you're not talking to them as if you think they're equal to Jesus, but you think they're alive and you're asking these saints to access this treasury of merit and to give you some of their goodness. Because they had too much. And we have this big treasury of goodness stored up. And we're going to dispense it to you. There's other ways to get it. We'll talk about some of those other ways in a minute. But one way is talking to the saints. And the reformers came along and just said, no way. Nobody has merit before God. Nobody earns their way with God. You receive righteousness as a gift. You don't earn it. So there is no treasury There is no point in talking to these people who have died as if they can somehow give us some of their own goodness and we can become more righteous in God's sight. Our hope is in Christ alone. We get righteousness from him, not from a saint, not from the church, not from this treasury of merit, but we're looking to Christ alone. Here's another way you could get some of that merit or access it is relics and pilgrimages. You can still do this today. You can do it over the internet. You can do it if you go to monasteries. You can go it if you, uh, do it if you go to certain cathedrals. Uh, I know people personally very well who have done this, who have gone to some holy Catholic site, paid money for a relic, and the relic is something associated with a saint. Maybe a piece of their hair. Maybe it's a piece of cloth that they touched. Maybe it's a fingernail clipping that someone picked up off the floor. I mean, they have some weird stuff. To us, it seems really weird. But to them, they say, if you buy this sacred holy item, this relic, you can have access to this treasury of merit. And a little bit of the extra ends up in your account. And you can imagine the reformers, as they're thinking about justification, as they're thinking about grace, as they're thinking about how salvation really works, they say, this is... This is crazy. We can't do that. Let's talk about Mary. I'll just read you a few things here. Uh, Catholic uh, dogma. Catholic dogma says Mary was born without the stain of original sin. That's the doctrine of the Immaculate Conception. She was born without sin. God ensured that. Catholic dogma says that Mary was taken to heaven without dying because she was, in effect, sinless. That's called the Assumption of Mary. The church teaches that she is, quote-unquote, mediatrix, who intercedes for the church and has the ability to help bestow salvation as our advocate and our helper. Uh, If you've ever been to a Catholic funeral, usually don't do this in a funeral, but they do it in a wake. So if you've ever been to a Catholic wake, they will pray through the rosary. Or maybe you've been to a service where they prayed through the rosary. There's a part in the rosary that addresses Mary as co-redemptrix. She contributes, in a way, to our redemption. This is not just like folk Catholicism. This is like dogma, official teaching. And the Catholic Church would say, look, if you're going to call on these saints who have died to help you and to sort of give you a little bit of goodness, who better to ask to pray for you than the mother of Jesus? Like, she's as close to Jesus as you can get. It's his own mom. So why not go to her? And ask her to help and ask her to contribute. And the, the reformers said, absolutely not. This is across the line. 
We revere Mary. She was a godly woman. There's no indication in the Bible that she was born without sin. There's no indication in the Scripture that she was taken to heaven without ever dying. There's absolutely no indication in Scripture that we should come to her as some sort of co-redemptrix uh, or advocate or helper or any of these things. So they said, Christ alone, not Mary. And the last thing on your list is the Pope. The Pope is the vicar of Christ on earth. That basically means he's like the main churchman on earth. He's sometimes called the supreme pontiff. You ever heard the title pontiff? That's a word that means bridge. Now, I know in your, in your brain, you probably grew up and maybe you saw the little illustration of you're on this mountain and God's on this mountain and sin separates you and Jesus is the bridge, the cross that helps you get across. And the Catholic teaching, Catholic title is that the Pope is that bridge in a sense between heaven and earth. Pope means father, and so sometimes he's called Holy Father, and he has this sort of exalted position of representation and providing access and grace and all sorts of stuff. And the reformer said, we don't need popes. We don't need popes to come to God. We don't need popes to interpret scripture for us. We don't need popes to help us be righteous. We just need Jesus. So what was the Reformation teaching? This is on your outline with a few blanks to fill in. Justification because of Christ alone means... That Jesus has done the necessary work of salvation utterly and completely so that no merit on the part of man, no merit of the saints, no works of ours performed either here or later in purgatory can add to his completed work. That's from a guy named James Montgomery Boyce, former pastor in Philadelphia. Just think through that one more time. No merit on the part of man, no merit of the saints, no works of ours performed either here or later in purgatory can add to the completed work of Jesus. This is the old hymn, Jesus paid it all. Right? He paid all of it. I don't need saints to fill in the gap. I don't need Mary to fill in the gap. I don't need popes to fill in the gap. I don't need relics to fill in the gap. I don't need any of these things. I don't need the mass. I just need Christ alone, through faith alone, by God's grace alone. That's what saves a person. So here's a few quotes from Martin Luther, and then we'll dig into the Scripture. Luther said, Faith must be taught correctly, namely that by it you are so cemented to Christ that he and you are as one person which cannot be separated but remains attached to him forever. This is the doctrine of union with Christ. And Luther is saying, through faith, when it's taught correctly, you are cemented to Christ. The two of you become one. Right? Like we think of a marriage ceremony, two become one. Luther's picking up on the biblical idea that that in marriage is a picture of Christ and his people, Christ and the church. Two become one, you're united to Christ, and if you're truly united to him by faith, you don't need relics. You don't need to make a pilgrimage somewhere. You don't need popes or saints or Mary or the treasury of merit because you are one with Christ. He said this, I like this quote, The first thing I ask is that people should not make use of my name and should not call themselves Lutherans, but Christians. What is Luther? The teaching is not mine, nor was I crucified for anyone. How did I, poor stinking bag of maggots that I am, come to the point where people call the children of Christ by my evil name? 
It's kind of funny because he's kind of a funny guy, but you understand the point he's trying to make. Like, why would you call yourself a Lutheran? You, you, you don't have access to God through Luther. You have access to God through Christ. And even in his lifetime, people were sort of tribing up and aligning with you know, different groups, the Zwingli group or the, this group or the Lutheran group or the Calvin group. And he's saying, look, forget all that stuff. You need Christ. You don't need Luther or Zwingli or Calvin or any of that stuff. What you need is Christ. So let's talk about what the Bible says. Have your Bible handy. We're going to look up some of these verses and uh, see if the Reformers were onto something. The Bible teaches that Jesus was fully God and fully man. John chapter 1. There's a, a hundred Bible verses we could look at for this idea or these two ideas. But John chapter 1 does a good job of describing it. John 1, starting in verse 1, we read, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. So there's a distinction between God and the Word, but at the same time there's a unity between God and the Word. And the Word really truly is God. And then if you jump down to verse 14, it says, The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. He was in the beginning God, and he took on humanity, and he became truly, fully human, fully God and fully man. You say, well, that's great. I don't really understand that. I don't know how to really wrap my mind around that, and I don't see why that really matters a whole hill of beans. I had a conversation with a guy this week just about this idea. Is Jesus fully God? Is he fully man? Does that matter? There's a guy who lived a lot of years ago before the Reformers. His name was Anselm. Anselm wrote a book called Why God Became Man. In Latin, the title is Curdeus Homo. And Anselm points out, we need a Redeemer who is truly God, and truly man. If he's not God, he cannot bear the infinite weight of our sin. If he's finite, he cannot bear the ultimate offense and the ultimate curse that our sin deserves against an infinitely holy God. We need him to be truly God. But if he's not man, he can't really take our place because we're men, we're humans. Hebrews makes this point. The blood of bulls and goats doesn't atone for anything. Never has, never will. We need someone like us. We need someone who is fully God and fully man, and that's what the Scripture is pointing us to. Jesus was fully God, and he was fully man. The Bible also says Jesus lived a life of perfect righteousness. Perfect righteousness. This is super, super important. Jesus never sinned, and more than that, he always did what was right. In any given situation, he always did, said, thought, said, felt. I think I said, said twice in there somewhere. He always did the right thing. He earned perfect righteousness. Look what we read in Hebrews chapter 4. Hebrews 4.
Hebrews 4, 14 to 16. It says, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast to our confession, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. He lived a life of perfect righteousness. And the reformers said this really matters because not only do you need someone to take your sin, we'll get to that in a minute, you need someone who can give you righteousness. You need your sin to be taken away, but even if your sin is taken away, that just kind of brings you back to ground zero. You haven't earned anything with God. In fact, you can't earn anything with God. You need righteousness to be given to you as a gift. And Jesus, in his life, earned that righteousness. Let's talk about the cross. The Bible describes the cross as, just throwing some terms at you, satisfaction, sacrifice, and substitution. Satisfaction, sacrifice, and substitution. And when you get the weight of the verses we're about to read, and you understand what it is that Jesus accomplished on the cross, the reformers would come back and say, why in the world would you need relics? If these verses are true, why would you need the mass? Why would you need another sacrifice? Why would you need to make a pilgrimage? Why would you need to pray to saints or Mary and have the, the treasury of merit? Why would you need all these things if what these verses say is really, really true? So let's just run through this, this list. Mark chapter 10. When we went through the Gospel of Luke, we said Luke 19.10 was the theme verse. For Luke, well, Mark 10, 45 is the theme verse for Mark. And it says, even the Son of Man came not to serve, not to be served, excuse me, but to serve. And he came to give his life as a ransom for many. He came to pay a ransom price. Not to the devil to let us go, but to God. He paid this price that God's wrath demanded. And he took our penalty. He came to pay our ransom. You don't need anyone else to ransom you. Jesus came to do that. Flip over and look at Romans chapter 3. Romans 3, let's read verse 25. It's talking about redemption in Jesus. And verse 25 says, God put him forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. It was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It showed his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. And Paul is saying, look, for hundreds of years, for millennia, God has just kind of passed over sins and he's given righteousness as a gift to men like Abraham who didn't deserve it and didn't earn it. Where did that righteousness come from? Well, it came from Jesus. We look backwards in faith, and those men looked forward in faith, and he credited this righteousness to them, and he's saying, at the cross, Jesus died. I know different translations use different words, but the best word really is he died as a propitiation. That means he died to satisfy the Father's anger. He died to take the Father's wrath. 
the anger and the wrath and the fury of a holy God that should have fallen on Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and David and Isaiah and Peter and Paul and James and Landon and Jimmy and Steve and all the rest, that anger was poured out on Christ. And it looked like for all those millennia, like God wasn't ever going to punish sin, but he actually punished it at the cross. And the reformers say, look, We look back to this cross. We receive it by faith. Paul says that in verse 25. If the propitiation has been paid, if the Father's wrath has been appeased, why do you need anyone else to earn your way with God? Why do you need saints? Why do you need relics? Why do you need pilgrimages? Christ did it. He died as a propitiation. Look at 1 Corinthians 15. Paul says, I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. Mary did not die for your sins. Saint whoever did not die for your sins. Jesus died for your sins. And that's how you can know forgiveness. Flip over and look at Galatians chapter 3. Galatians 3.13 says Christ redeemed us. That ought to make your brain go back to Mark 10.45. He came to pay a ransom, purchased us. Well, here it says he redeemed us. He paid this price to buy us back. He redeemed us from the curse of the law. How? He became a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. He took the curse. Mary didn't take the curse. The Pope doesn't take the curse. Jesus took the curse, and that's where you find life. Hebrews chapter 2. Verse 17 says, He had to be made like his brothers in every respect. That's God, the Son of God becoming man. He had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might be a merciful and a faithful high priest in the service of God. To make propitiation for the sins of the people. He's our high priest. We need no other priest. We don't need to have a priesthood. Jesus is the final, the ultimate, the last, the true high priest. And he makes this offering of himself, this sacrifice of himself to pay or to assuage the Father's wrath. Look at 1 Peter chapter 1. First Peter 1, 18 and 19 says you were ransomed. It's the exact same word we read in Mark 10, 45. You were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He ransomed you. If he paid the ransom price, why do you need to add to it? Why does anyone need to add to it? The price has been paid. First John 2. Verse 2, he is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but for the sins of the whole world. He paid this sacrifice for us. Last verse, Revelation 5. Revelation 5, 9 to 10. This is worship in heaven, and it says, They sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed. Same word. 
You ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom and priest to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. This worship in heaven, in the end, is not going to say, thank goodness the saints came through with the treasury of merit so all these people could get in. Thank goodness we had enough relics to sell around so that all these people could get in. Thank goodness we had the Pope who was there to represent us and to help us and to intercede for us. Thank goodness we had Mary, this co-redemptrix. The worship is completely focused on Christ. You ransomed them. You purchased them. Satisfaction, it's a sacrifice, and it's substitution. This is why even at Christmas, we have to always be careful when we celebrate the birth of Jesus to say, our hope is not in Bethlehem, our hope is in Calvary. Calvary's the center, not Bethlehem. Bethlehem's important. It's where God becomes man, and that's vital and necessary and important. But our hope is not fulfilled in Bethlehem. Our hope is fulfilled 30 years later when Jesus earns righteousness through a life of obedience and then dies as a sacrifice, as a propitiation for our sins. The Bible describes Jesus as our mediator. He's our mediator. Let's look at 1 Timothy 2.5. Many of you have memorized this verse. 1 Timothy 2.5 says, There is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Jesus Christ. Who, if you keep going, says he gave himself as a, there's that word again, you're like, that word's everywhere, as a ransom. Gave himself as a ransom, therefore he is qualified, the God-man, to be our mediator. And he is the only one qualified. There is one mediator between God and man. There is no co-mediator. There is no mediatrix, but there is one mediator. The Bible tells us that the believer is united to Christ by faith. His righteousness becomes ours, and our sin is counted paid in his death. We're truly united to him. That's the point of Galatians 2. Last, the Bible supports the exclusivity of Christ. We'll talk about that in just a minute. You can look these up later. Uh, John 14, 6, Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Acts 4, 12, Jesus says, There is no other name given among men under heaven by which we may be saved. And then Romans 10 says they've got to hear. Faith comes through hearing, hearing the word of Christ. They've got to hear the gospel. Galatians 1, Paul says, I don't care who preaches to you a different gospel or says there's another way. It's only through Jesus. And if anyone says that, let them be accursed. So it's the exclusivity of Christ. Just a couple of challenges I want to mention to this. What are the challenges we face to Solus Christus today? I'll mention three. The first one is inclusivism, pluralism, uh, pluralism, and universalism. So let me try to explain these isms as simply as I can. They're really not that complicated. The inclusivist position. Let's talk about that first. I promise you there are, I've not taken a poll. I'm just saying I'd be confident that there's at least a dozen pastors in Odessa, Texas that hold this position. Inclusivism. They say... If you are going to go to heaven someday, you're going to be in heaven when you die, all that needs to happen is you need to be sincere in your faith, whatever your faith is. It could be Christianity, 
could be Buddhism, could be Hinduism or Islam or whatever. Whatever your faith is, you're sincere in that. And when you die, this is inclusivism, you will find out, if you're sincere, that Jesus has saved you. doesn't matter if you believe in him in this life or not. So these people can say with a straight face, they can look at you and they can say, I believe salvation is only in Jesus. Yeah, that's, he's the only way. But what they're not saying to you is, in this life, you have got to repent of your sins and trust in Jesus. Faith alone. In Christ alone. By God's grace alone. So Jesus is, is the way. We're all going to, anyone who ends up in heaven is going to be there because of Jesus. Then they just back it up and say, but... You just have to be sincere in this life and whatever it is you believe. And when you die, if you're sincere, you say, oh, nice surprise. Jesus took all the sincere people to heaven with him. That's inclusivism. Next position is pluralism. Pluralism is a little bit worse. The pluralist says, all you need to do in order to go to heaven when you die is be sincere in your faith. Because all roads lead to the same place. There's not going to be any like divine surprise that Jesus is the only way at the end. Jesus is not at the top of the mountain. Jesus is just one way up the mountain. I promise you there's pastors in our area that believe that. There are a plurality of ways to find salvation. It does not have to be through Jesus only. Um, I've told you about a pastor that was at uh, Emmanuel Baptist Church where I was in Frankfort, Kentucky. And he wrote these columns in the paper, and he was a pluralist, okay? Not just an inclusivist, but a pluralist. Many roads lead. Jesus is one of those roads. And he's talking about this verse, and he says, you know, John 14, 6, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. And he says, well, that's true for Christians. If you're a Christian, that's the way. But if you're a Muslim, that's the way. And if you're a Buddhist, that's the way. But for Christians, Jesus is the way. And so there's the, the pluralist position. Universalism just says, you don't have to be sincere about anything. We're all going to heaven when we die. We're all going. Um, those are real worldview positions that people hold today in the United States, and they hold them in Odessa, Texas. You, you know people. Whether you realize it or not, you know people who go to church every Sunday. And who say they love Jesus, who if they're really pressed would hold to one of those positions. And those are challenges to the position of Christ alone. And they're challenges to the position of saying, Jesus is the only way for any man, woman, boy, girl, anyone to find salvation and to have a relationship with God. So those are a few challenges. You'll find them uh, even in Odessa. Next challenge is humanism. So here's another ism. This is just focus on us, okay? Focus on us. Humanism can take the form of the radical atheist. I think of um, one of my family members who does not believe in God, does not claim to follow Jesus, does not attempt to live a life that is pleasing to God in any way, shape, or form, and just thinks we're, the, we're it. We're the highest. We're the, the pinnacle. It's all about us. We can do whatever we want, and uh, he's just a, a self-avowed humanist. Like, we're the highest. So the buck stops here. That's humanism. Um, you're probably, you're the Wednesday night crew. You guys aren't going to be tempted by that. But 
There's another kind of humanism for folks that like to go to church on Sunday morning and um, sing out of hymn books or sing off screens or whatever. And it's the kind of humanism that says we're coming to church to focus on God, but then we come to church and we just focus about us. We don't focus on Jesus. We just focus on us. How can you have a better life? How can you get more? How can you see all your wildest dreams come true? How can you have the greatest marriage ever? How can you be successful at work? How can you handle your money better? You, 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 me, me, me. We're the center of it. We just happen to do it in a church building. And we tack Jesus on to the end of it. That's a threat and a a form of humanism that you've got to watch for. And the last one I put on here is spirit focus. Um, I didn't want to put spiritism. That's kind of a different thing, but spirit focus. You'll find this in churches that, you know, they say they believe the Bible. They say they love God. They're all about Jesus. But at the end of the day, the focus in that church is not on Jesus. The focus is on the Holy Spirit. And rather than an objective truth about Christ grounded in the Scripture being the center of everything, it's a subjective experience of the Holy Spirit being the ground of everything. So it really doesn't matter what God has objectively said in the Bible. It just matters how I subjectively feel about it. Like, these people will talk about God to you. They're happy to talk about God to you. They just sort of say, well, you know, I just don't feel that. Well, I don't know if I'm just comfortable with. Well, I don't think the Spirit is, is leading me in that direction. And ultimately, the focus is either on themselves or it could be on the Holy Spirit. And I think you even find this in some uh, of our more charismatic churches. Not all, but some. The focus really is not on Jesus and what he's done, but it's on the Spirit and what he's doing. And it's not grounded in what Jesus has done at all. And the problem with that is in John 14 and John 16, Jesus said, I'm going to send the Spirit, and the Spirit's job is to make me look good. His job is to point people to me. His job is to show people the truth about me. That's the job of the Holy Spirit, is to point people to Jesus, not to point people to the Spirit. And so sometimes you face this this problem, and it's dangerous because it's in a church. And it's churches that from the outside looking in may look like they have a lot of life and a lot of excitement. And there's exciting things going on, and God is still speaking to us, and all these sort of, you know, catchphrases you may hear. The problem is the focus is completely on the Holy Spirit and not on what Jesus has done to save us. So there's Solus Christus and a few threats that we may face to that today.